0: Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. For today's program, we continue our series He Made Me Human with Dr. John Newfeld. Today's message will focus on the great story of the flood, so let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, verse 13, as we learn about Judgment Day.
1: The account of Noah and of the global flood is an account that still brings up much debate. There are those who have argued that this cannot be a universal flood. They argue that a universal flood would destroy all plant life, that the ark would not have been big enough to hold all the species of the earth and enough to feed them, that mixing salt water and fresh water would have been disastrous for fish, and that the technology could not have existed to build a vessel of that size and that it would have capsized when it was unable to head into the wind. They argue that the entire enterprise seems impossible and so the only conclusion must be that this is some kind of a local flood since after all, and so the argument goes, at this time all the human race would have been locally confined. But before we answer these objections, two things are necessary. And first, let's ask and answer, what does the Bible actually teach? And second, What's the reason for this account? In other words, what is God doing in this account? I mean, why does he send a flood, and what does the flood actually represent, and what are we supposed to learn from it? So let's start at the beginning. I'm reading from Genesis 6:13 to 22. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them and the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make room in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of everything shall come into you to keep them alive." Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Now, please notice that in this long section, God gives Noah both directions for building the ark and the reason for doing so. Go back to verse 13. I have determined to make an end to all flesh. Now, the context of Genesis makes this matter clear. God is deeply moved, filled with sorrow over the rebellion of the human race. And by the human race, he means the descendants of Adam. The ungodly line of Cain have built cities and advanced human civilizations, yet have done so by force of violence and have decided that they will not bow the knee to the Creator. And then with time, the godly line, persecuted and afraid, have intermarried with the ungodly line so that none is left. And in effect, the flood teaches us that God will not relinquish his designs for his creation to the rule of rebels. Rebels will not win the war against God. Now, the question we must answer is this. How large is the human race at this time? Now, if the genealogical record we find in the Bible contains no gaps, then we must have a period of about 1,500 years from Adam until Noah, and Methuselah would have died in the year of the flood. But if the genealogy contains gaps, so that the Hebrew word fathered or became the father of actually can be translated as became the ancestor of, then we might have a period of time, let's say, perhaps twice that long or even longer. We know, for instance, that Matthew's genealogy in the beginning of Matthew contains gaps that this may have been a standard Hebrew practice. So, for instance, when Matthew says that Uzziah fathered Jotham, he actually omits three generations. So the word father can mean became the ancestor of. Furthermore, when Matthew constructs his genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, he organizes his genealogy into three groups of 14 names each, making his genealogy a completely symmetrical list. And for those of you who know how this works will recognize that the numerical equivalent actually equal the Hebrew letters D, V, and then D, which actually spells David. Matthew uniquely creates a genealogy and constructs it in such a way as to prove that Jesus is in fact David's greater son and the one who sits on David's throne actually rules the world. He is signaling the reader that this will be the story of Jesus the king. Now, this is a typical Jewish way of thinking. In the Genesis 5 genealogy, we notice that Moses, the author of Genesis, shows us 10 generations from the flood, and then later in Genesis 11, another 10 generations after the flood until Abraham. Again, just like Matthew would do later. This is a symmetrical genealogy. Now, it's been suggested that this symmetrical list is intended to show that God's purposes in the earth are complete and lacking in nothing. Ten is a number of completion, and two times ten would mean God is repeating that his purposes are being fulfilled. That would mean that the list in Genesis chapter 5 is both a representation of real people who lived long ago, but not necessarily all the people who lived. Now, I don't want to make a federal case of this or have people send me nasty emails for, quite frankly, we can see this one way or the other. I only raise this here to imply that the time frame and the lengthy lifespans and the long period of female fertility would leave us with the conclusion that at this time in human history, human expansion may have covered a large portion of the earth. Human civilization would no longer be localized, and therefore, if God is going to judge all flesh, the flood would have to have been a universal flood. Also, human inventions and ingenuity might have created a world that could have rivaled and surpassed even our own. And if that's correct, then we have to assume that if God comes to judge the sins of all flesh, as he says, a universal flood would have been required. And that's what we're reading about here. Now, I add to this the dimensions of the Ark, which would roughly have been about 450 feet long, or as they say in the U.S., a football field and a half, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high on three levels, which would have left a total deck area of around 100,000 square feet, Or others have argued for about 1,500,000 cubic feet equal to about 570 modern railroad stock cars. So if you allow for the fact that water species were not on the ark, a great many animals would have been on board. Now, in his book, Noah's Ark, A Feasibility Study, John Woodmorap suggests that the word species is not equivalent to the created kinds of the Genesis account, so fewer species than today, which would have evolved in unique ways after the flood. He argues that three trains hauling 70 cars each would accommodate 50,000 animals, allowing for some 370 cars of food and baggage and supplies. In other words, there would have been enough room for all that was needed on the biblical ark. Now, I say all of this not because I've done the calculations myself, only to say that the biblical account only makes sense if this is a universal flood. I see no reason at all for taking the account in any other way than a factual retelling of a global flood. Furthermore, as we've noticed, there are legends and folklores in cultures around the globe that tell some sort of story of a universal flood. I mean, they're found in Europe, in the Near East, in Africa, Asia, Australia, and in the Americas, and are also found among numerous island peoples of the Pacific. Of course, they differ in a number of respects, and this would make sense. Human accounts are varied and different, and they all have at the center the story of a global flood and an ark. Clearly, this is a collective memory, even to this day, of what Genesis describes. But some might ask, how do we know that the biblical story is correct? And the answer to that will be completely dependent on whether you conclude that there is enough evidence in the Bible to believe that it is an authoritative revelation from God. And I think there is. The fact that the Bible is in many places historically verified the fact that the Bible comes to us with thousands of ancient manuscripts, the fact that the Bible was written over 1,600 years by over 40 authors, giving us one unified story, all these tell us that we can believe the biblical account. But I make this point to indicate that what we have is a credible, believable, and even frightening account in which God globally puts to death the entire human race and preserves one man and his family. And when we come back, we're going to try to answer why God would do that and what we should learn from this account.
0: The biblical account of a universal flood recorded in Genesis is one of the most well-known stories that is familiar to most of us. But what we choose to believe about the flood can reveal, in essence, what we believe about the Bible itself, namely its truth and authenticity. So far, this has been a revealing introduction to answering what the Word actually teaches us about the flood. And when we come back, we'll discover more about its significance and relevance for our lives today. What makes a family? Family is a bond of body, heart, mind, and soul. And one way to nurture spiritual growth with our families is to share in a time of devotion. Homes are helped by a time and place to talk about the things of God. Family devotions may seem daunting, but help is on the way. This month, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway will release a new family devotional, Four Minutes for Frazzled Families. It's a 31-day devotional guide for parents or grandparents looking to provide spiritual leadership in their homes and for their families. Back to the Bible Canada believes these times of sharing together are critical for the spiritual growth of the family. So visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 to request 4 Minutes for Frazzled Families. And we'll send you and your family this helpful tool for free.
1: A key verse we've passed over must now be taken into account. It's chapter 6, verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. This is the first time in the Bible that the word covenant is used. You will have noticed that I've made the argument that the word covenant was implied in relationship to Adam, but the word was never used, but it is here. So why is that significant? Well, first of all, a covenant is a binding, irrevocable agreement. We might think of a covenant as an agreement that two people make, like the signing of a contract where both parties agree to certain stipulations and an agreed-upon penalty if the stipulations are not met. That idea gets at part of what the Bible refers to as a covenant, but not entirely. There are, I think, at least two significant differences between a human contract and a biblical covenant. The first is that covenant implies relationship. There is behind the idea of covenant the rich tones of love and concern and care for the other. Now, the second difference is that in the Bible, the great covenants are initiated by God alone, and God alone ratifies the covenant. So, for instance, in Genesis 15, some of you will remember that when God forges a covenant with Abraham, Abraham then must cut a number of animals in two, but in the end. Only God is represented as walking between the two animals, not God and Abraham together, as we might expect. And in that is a beautiful secret. A covenant is a compulsory commitment in which God binds himself to a given action. And that's amazing. God doesn't have to bind himself to do anything. After all, the earth is the Lord's. All he has to do is to destroy the rebels who fight against him. But God takes Noah's side and binds himself to Noah. God stakes his reputation and righteousness to what he promises this one man. God says, when I destroy this earth by a flood, I place my entire reputation as God on this promise. You will not drown with the rest of mankind, neither will your family. And so we can't understand this story at all without understanding this aspect to it. And by the way, Isn't that what we have in the new covenant in the blood of Christ? God binds himself to a promise through the substitutionary atoning death of his son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And if God does not deliver on that, he ceases to be the righteous God. I mean, such is the position of the believer before God. God alone establishes the covenant, and we who have come to find ourselves in Christ are recipients of a covenant. God's covenants cannot fail. Now, we're going to go through chapter 7 rather quickly. So first to chapter 7, 1 to 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Now please notice that the statement, I have seen that you are righteous, is a singular you. Now would that mean that Noah's family is not righteous? Well, we're not told, but we have to assume that in some fashion they are, and that Noah simply serves as the head of his home. Secondly, I also notice that the term righteous does not mean that Noah lives according to his works or that his righteousness has earned merit before God or earned him a place on the ark. It simply means here that he has submitted his life to the will of God, and this is seen especially in the building of the ark. He submits to God's revealed will in his life. Noah's righteousness is not in what he has accomplished, but it is a reflection of the fact that he willingly embraces what God has directed him to do. So, Noah's righteousness does not earn his salvation. Rather, Noah's righteousness is a reflection of a man who walks in relationship to his God. So, we can say that Noah was not saved by his righteous works, rather Noah was saved because he like Seth and Enoch before him, walked with God. And that's the beginning of the covenant. God determines that he will rescue the man or the woman who walks with him. That's God's promise, and he stakes his reputation to that point. Now, at this point in the narrative, we've noticed something that's not appeared in the book until now. A distinction is made between clean and unclean animals, and it's not until the book of Leviticus in chapter 11 that Israel will be given a list of animals that are clean, meaning that they can be eaten, and those that are unclean, meaning they cannot be touched. But here there seems to be some basic understanding of this concept far in advance of the giving of the law. Furthermore, the clean animals are the ones that are to be sacrificed as an act of worship when all this is over. Noah will do what is righteous. He will express gratitude to God for his salvation. So let's continue to read verses 6 to 16. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to all their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went to the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. Now, please notice here three very important factors of this story. First, regarding the actual dates and times. These are given to show us that this is an historic moment, a moment never to be forgotten. Second, notice that as the earth was filled with floodwaters, this time now mirrors the time when the earth was covered by water before God spoke order into the chaotic world. And the third thing I notice is the last line that it was the Lord that shut Noah and his family in. It gives us the sense that Noah's salvation is due to the grace of God. It is God's protection of his man whom God has covenanted to save. Let's read to the end of the chapter. The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high upon the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark." And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I want to end simply by noticing that the Hebrew word translated as prevailed is a word often used for a victory in battle. In the battle between rebels and God, God prevails. Every rebel against God's purposes eventually dies. So what does that mean for us today? Well, as we continue to study this fascinating account of Noah, We are going to see that every attempt to overthrow God's rule will end in disaster for those who rebel against God. Join us tomorrow as we continue this fascinating study.
0: John, this is a great message to introduce the story of Noah, but let me ask you a very frank question. Is it absolutely necessary for the Christian to believe that this is a factual story?
1: It's a great question. And I know that there are those that will argue it's not. But let me give you the best argument that I know that this must be thought of factual in order to understand the Bible. The Bible ties three events together. The flood with Noah, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the third is the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment. If number one and number two didn't actually happen, that we have no basis for believing that the great judgment to come is going to happen. The Bible always presents us with real history. And the fact that God has acted in this way in the past leads us to believe that the great judgment facing the human race is still to come. This, in fact, is where the factual reading of the Bible leads us.
0: What a compelling conclusion to our study today, looking more closely at the flood. There's so much to learn here about the character of God, His relationship with us, and the reality of judgment for all humanity. Further, we can start to see this idea of the covenant between God and man that is revealed throughout the Bible. It's this covenant relationship that binds God to His people forever and reveals His grace and mercy even in the midst of our depravity. Dr. Newfeld will continue his series He Made Me Human tomorrow. So be sure to listen again as we'll look at the message entitled God So Loved the World. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Every home depends on God's supply. Back to the Bible Canada relies upon his supply through the faithfulness of our listeners. Thank you for your gifts that allow us to make new resources to help support you in your walk with Christ, as well as sustain our Bible teaching programs. Your support makes this ministry possible. Your generosity allows us to proclaim God's truth. Our families need it. If you wish to support us in a form of a donation, please visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Or you may consider joining our 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and have your contribution to this ministry recur on a monthly basis. To find out more about the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Partner Program and the exclusive benefits you unlock by joining, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or give us a call at one 663 2425